I had a dream that I died, and I was a ghost, ghost, ghost. And I appeared to Randy Yost, Yost, Yost. And I said, hello, Randy. But he didn't see me. And I appeared to David Thornberry, Thornberry, Thornberry. And I said, what's going on, on, on? Where's Rusty, Rusty, Rusty? Can't you hear me? Hear me? Hear me? But he didn't notice. And Ron Harris was at his house, staring at a sports magazine. I didn't say anything, because I knew I couldn't be seen. Wherever music is, or people are, festivals, or carnivals, rummage sales, that's where I'll be. That's where I'll be. I had a dream, and I died. I was a ghost, ghost, ghost. and I'll tell a story about an artist growing old some would try for fame and glory others aren't so bold everyone and friends and family saying hey get a job why do you only do that only? Why are you so odd? We don't really like what you do. We don't think anyone ever will. It's a problem that you have. And this problem's made you ill. Listen up and I'll tell a story About an artist growing old Some would try for fame and glory Others aren't so bold The artist walks alone Someone says behind his back He's got his gall to call himself that He doesn't even know where he's at The artist walks among the flowers Appreciating the sun He does this all his waking hours But is it really so wrong? They sit in front of their TVs Saying, hey, this is fun And they laugh at the artist Saying he doesn't know how to have fun The best things in life are truly free Singing birds and laughing bees got me wrong, says he. The 
sun don't shine in your TV. Listen up and I'll tell a story about an artist growing old. Some would try for fame and glory. Others aren't so bold. Everyone and friends and family saying, hey, get a job. Why do you only do that only? Why are you so odd? We don't really like what you do. We don't think anyone ever will. It's a problem that you have. And this problem's made you ill. Listen up and I'll tell a story About an artist growing old Some would try for fame and glory Others just like to watch the world Welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Duritz, along with your other host, James Campion. How are one you? And only. I'm good. I'm good. And that, that of course, was Daniel Johnston, the late great. Who just passed away a couple of months ago, and um, just right before Rick Ocasek, and we did that uh, retrospective of the cars over a couple of podcasts. So we figured we'd dedicate a podcast to Daniel and his work and art. Beautiful, beautiful song there called... Um, Story of an artist from a, a record from 19, or a tape from 1982 called Don't Be Scared. And before that, a poem of his called Dream from a 1985 tape called Respect. Before we begin, I just want to say that the thing about Daniel for me, and one of the reasons why I want to dedicate, and you know, Adam uh, too, want to dedicate a podcast to him is because you know, he's one of those guys, one of the few guys, and my partner's one of those guys too, but there's some people who just from a very early age, are not sure how they're going to fit into the world, but they know how they're going to – they want to be creative. They want to express themselves. Some people come to the, the, the realization later on that they're creative, and, and there's, that's the thing they want to do. But with Daniel, he never – there was never a time, I think, as a sentient human being where he didn't want to make things. As a very young boy, he made films and, and, and drew. He was a wonderful artist. Even to his later age, he, he showed his work at, at art galleries um, – he was into all the stuff we were into as kids, comic books and horror movies and, and rock and roll, the Beatles, and his tapes are all self-made, and he did it with really no fanfare, but his story is fascinating. We want to talk about it. I wrote some notes down here to talk about it as well, but when you listen to a song like that and listen to how it's recorded, clearly it's somebody just by themselves playing a piano. It's kind of in tune, <laughs> kind of not, uh, singing not, you know, hesitating on certain things, but it's real, and that came at a time for me as an artist 
in the late 80s that meant the world to me. Like when I first heard those tapes, those DIY, DIY tapes, which blew us all away. Everybody in my little group were just floored by them. It's a weird thing for me listening to him. It's, I mean, real is, is the word. It's heartbreakingly real. You, he takes you in. There's, uh, he he's really just, in some some of the songs, like this one especially, just unvarnished telling you what he feels. And uh, it can feel at first like it's just clumsy writing, but it has a power to it, especially in this song. I mean, other songs, I, I don't want to, I don't know we want to call it metaphor or just the images that are in his head, uh, which we then call metaphors. But in other songs, he's, he's more, uh, more imagery, uh, more metaphor. But this one, it's really just, this is what my life's like. This is how it feels to be me. I know all the people around me think I'm a joke and, uh, you know, I find that really heartbreaking in this because he's someone who is obviously severely mentally ill, he's severe uh, bipolar, you know, manic depressive disorder, and is able to function in the world with various degrees of success at times in his life. It never lasts very long, uh, and it always leads to some kind of uh, breakdown. Uh, I don't know. This song has always killed me because of the nature of it, because it is such and like, this is how I am. This is my life. This is how you've all thought of me all along. This is never going to change. But I'm here in my garage anyways, recording right. this because this is how I feel. And the know? fact that he, he writes it in the third person, this is a story of an art. You know, he's writing about himself, but he's telling you the story about it. And I'm always reminded about what you say, and I think you mentioned it uh, in the last festival when we were interviewing some of the artists, is that, um, you know, when you are a creative – when you're a songwriter, when everyone outside is enjoying the sun and going to the beach and playing ball and doing the other – you're in a room by yourself working on your craft, writing the songs. It's a different world. So when he sings things, says things like everybody thinks TV's great and that's fun and going out – but this is how I survive. This is the thing that I'm doing that makes me survive. That's why these songs spoke so strongly to me in 1989 when I first heard it because – I didn't keep going in my music career. I was not as good as you guys, or I was in a band that was good. And so, but it was hard for me. You have to make that call. Do you want to do this for the rest of your life? I always wanted to be a writer, so I, I, I wrote lyrics and sang in a band. But when I heard these songs from this guy, it was like, this guy is living it. And by this point, he had already put out like 12 of these tapes by himself and had been going on for years and was this phenomenon in the mid-80s in Austin, Texas. He's part of that whole movement of Austin, of the, the independent uh, artists, and, and he was, he was uh, and I have it in my notes here, but he was voted like Songwriter of the Year one of the years there. So, and it was just dawned on me, this guy is living it. And I didn't know any of the stuff that you're talking about, which I learned years later, uh, reading articles about him, about his mental illness, and of course the great um, Devil and Daniel Johnston film that came out in the early aughts, I think 2004, 2005, that really goes deeply into it, and we highly recommend you watch that. But it's, it's clearly in the songs, though. It comes out that way. Yeah, I mean, he's a big part of the first explosion of the Austin scene, um, we could talk about the MTV thing later. Yes, it's, of course. it's part of your narrative, so I don't want to get ahead and talk about that. Sure, but he, he is a uh, he, he is a on location at the key moment there yes. to, to become a big part of it. Yep. Um, 
Let's go on. Let's go on. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, I took some notes down here, so I'll go through his – because to understand these songs is to understand the man. Adam said it best. He writes about his life, but he writes about it in ways because of his creativity, the way he sees the world with that little bit of a slant that you always talk about. That And because of his mental illness, it's it's a really fascinating insight into the music. And sometimes – it can be a little rough to listen to because it's not all there. But I've heard writers talk about this and, 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 and artists and fans. You'll hear some great cover songs in this podcast of really, truly great artists covering his songs. And the songs come out there because, as, as a lot of these people say, you hear the Beatles in there. You hear Brian Wilson. You hear the orchestras in there. He just couldn't bring it across because he wasn't a great, great musician. And, and, and he had – he was battling this mental illness. So it's all there, and, and that's why I want to begin by, by telling you a little bit about him. Daniel was the youngest of five children. He was born in, in a little town called New Cumberland, West Virginia. And almost immediately when he was a kid, he exhibited this classic childhood sy- symptoms of genius. He tested very highly and was in advanced classes in grammar school. But, of course, he infuriated all of his teachers. And his mom in that film, uh, Devil and Daniel Johnson, said Daniel was a trial as a kid. And he didn't follow any of the rules and then he began – in junior high and then later on, he started to get like a real bravado about his art. And he retreated inside of himself and he drew more and he did, started uh, – you know, learned how to play piano and started working on these songs, doing these little claymation films with his brother and, and acting in these films. And, and some of these are shown in that film. Uh, and then he discovered the monkeys and the Beatles. When he, by the time he got to high school – he was really known for being the musician in school, and he would write these songs, and the kids would show up, and he'd play the songs for them. And then he started to work on these, these really kind of Dolly-esque uh, renderings, and one of them was called Dead Dog's Eyeball, which became one of his signature uh, drawings of an eyeball with wings on it flying through the sky. These are the kind of things he was working in then, then a sort of a fever dream style. And, and, and friends in, in school were calling him the artist. They would just say, hey, it's the artist. Here comes the artist. And so he started to feel this way. But at home, he was not accepted that way. His, his parents were a little worried about him. They thought he was really smart and he should be doing better in school. And he's spending all this time in the basement with his piano and his drawings. And that's when he started to be, you know, his parents were leaning on him. And he writes a lot of, about this in his first couple of tapes called uh, Songs of Pain and Songs of Pain 2, in which he talks about not being able to really connect to his family um it well, was say this ahead, though please. like if his parents were to think of him differently they'd be the first parents on earth to just grasp that i mean look he right. he's a mess in a lot of ways he's not doing any work in school he's drawing you know Very eyeballs disturbing. bloody eyeballs every day <laughs> which is so like a lot of kids who are getting stoned and drawing bloody eyeballs and, and <laughs> never turning into anything else and it's never going to go anywhere for most of them sure you know and so for his parents and he's also recording stuff that you know doesn't sound very good it's incredibly lo-fi and it's you know he never does develop no i shouldn't say that's not really true i mean I, all i'm saying is like for his parents i mean it's weird in the, i think the movie does a pretty good job of portraying that which is one of the reasons interesting about it because his parents are really there for him throughout his life they absolutely are i mean they they take care of him from the day he's born till the day he dies right really and uh and they learn to understand and tolerate it and also to appreciate him, I think. But it was a lot. It would have been a lot to ask parents to just let a kid fuck around. No question about you know it. And I'm mean? not blaming his parents. And I think you're right. The film does a great job of that. I'm saying from his standpoint, because if you listen to a lot of those songs, he actually taped his mother yelling at him. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, those are incredible. <laughs> 
the, his poor mother, though, part of, you know, different tracks on his records. These it's just things his where he's mother like, yelling He's got a tape him. recorder with him at all times throughout his life, and he's recording everything everyone says to yes, him. Yes, everything's art. And he's probably antagonizing people and then recording them. Yes. And then he puts that as a track on the record, so you get to hear his mother yelling at him. You know, she's a religious woman who's wondering what he's doing, drying all these, like, satanic images right. in the basement. Uh, and then he's making movies where he's portraying her yes, very as badly. this crazy harridan who harangues him every day. <laughs> you know, his poor parents, in a way, like they, they took the brunt of it with a, a fair amount of tolerance and good humor over the course of his life. They never really, like, in any final way rejected him. They did hospitalize him a few times. They did. uh, But that's what you do. They must have – I think you said this, and I don't mean to give – you know, I hate to talk about stuff we talked about in the book because I don't want to give it away. But one of my favorite things you said to me was thinking about having children is always scary for people like us because you said I would have scared the shit out of my parents – out of me. You said if I was my – if I was the parent of me is what you said. And that's the way I feel. Like I think back to it now. And I drove my parents insane. And I just thought that they were just totally trying to keep me down the way Daniel writes about this. But clearly they were just trying to deal with me. Yeah, I, I was really lucky. I had parents who were incredibly tolerant and loving about it and, you know, probably also realized they're both doctors. They realized I had some problems and some of, you know, a, something of a mental illness, you know, that they were trying to help me through that. But they were terrified, I'm sure, because when your son <laughs> yes. has a mental illness, you're like, what the hell is going to happen to him? Right. You know, that would have been really scary. How are you going to shepherd this person through into a life where they can take care of themselves, you know? And I'm sure they were really... I'd be fucking terrified to deal with me. And I'd be way more terrified to deal with Daniel Johnston. Yes. And clearly he couldn't take care of himself. But it wouldn't be until... He went to Abilene Christian College in Texas that he began to complain of pains all over his body, which was later diagnosed as uh, psychosomatic symptoms of manic depression. It's the first signs for him. Uh, he's sent home at that time, and he recovers with his parents. His parents take care of him, as Adam said, but then they, they, they feel he's, he's recovered, so they send him off to Kent State. They're just trying to find some place for this guy to learn to get a trade. He and, goes, and, he's, and he's from a small town in West Virginia. It is a pretty... You know, this is not a New metropolitan City, area right. where they necessarily have a lot of history and uh, uh, experience dealing with stuff like he's going through. You yes. know, he would have been a very rare commodity in that town. And, you know, it, it probably was a very difficult thing for everybody around him and especially himself because no one would have understood no, and, and, they, and they didn't. He had this one really close friend, and I forget his name. He's a huge part of, of the film. Is that his name? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah very good. And um, anyway, but it, at, at, at Kent State, he meets Laurie Allen, who becomes a key element, to say the least. This is the, most under, this is the understatement of all understatements. She co- becomes a key element to his work, his paintings, his writings, his music. In fact, Daniel said years later, she inspired a thousand songs and meeting her is when I knew I was an artist. For somebody like Daniel Johnston to say something like that at that age, already a teenager, when he's been creating since he could, like I said, since he's a sentient being, is a major statement. Now, I did want to play a couple of songs from his uh, 1982 album, The What of Whom, and also from Hi, How Are You? There's two songs that he writes about they're very early Laurie Allen songs. So it gives you an insight of what was going on and how he blossomed expressing himself the first one is called uh mad obsessed and then the second is called 
she called pest control. And the reason why I write that they're back to back is because, and I did, I think I put them back to back. Did I put them? Yeah, is because they, he talks about being a pest in the first one, and then how she is not obviously just like Daniel's parents. It's hard to deal with someone like Daniel having a crush on you, especially as a teenager. So here are the two songs, Man Obsessed into She Called Pet Control, very early work by Daniel Johnston. Oh, horrible! It's a horrible, horrible of sin! <laughs> he's a man obsessed. He couldn't be a lover, so now he's a pest. He played the to die. Why don't you die? The only way you could get her to look at you is to die. Why don't you die? He's a man obsessed. He couldn't be a lover, so now he's a pest. He played the game, but he failed the test. He's a man obsessed. He's a pest. And when she was sprayed, she never was bothered again. She wore Western-style boots, foreshadowing things to come. I said, I'm an artist in search of a medium. She said, I know. And I said, well, I gotta go, looking back over my shoulder to see if she was sorry I was leaving, because I thought I was lying. But I was going, I was going, I was gone. She called pest control. And when she was sprayed, she never was bothered again. You know, when I, whenever I hear anything off of Hi, How Are You, I always remember that uh, there was a period of months i mean it feels like years in my memory but it's so long ago i'm sure it was just a few months where kurt cobain who was you know an omnipresent figure in in music at that point especially when you're a music geek and you're like looking at every show and you're reading every magazine and for a while every time you saw kurt cobain in every picture in every interview he had the shirt from he had a shirt hi how are you shirt which is uh, the album that daniel johnston made in 1983 and Kurt Cobain wore the shirt fucking everywhere. <laughs> he really did. You know, it really, I, I just, rem, I remember that's like, the, that may be the first time I heard about Daniel Johnston was like, what is that shirt? Yeah. You know? And it was for, for us that got, like I said, real quick, my experience of, of first getting Daniel, 
satire just broke up my band and I was playing I was singing I was doing what you did I was, I was helping friends out singing on their demos and different things and this guy Sean Eddie Laison was a, a good friend of mine he's a singer a songwriter and he had gotten this tape from someone and I remember him running over to just not well, coming into the room and running handing me this tape he's like you have to listen to this now and we put it on and we didn't know what to make of it we got songs like that and just very lo-fi, piano out of tune. Guy sounds like he's eight years old, but the lyrics were so sad. So we laughed, we, 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 we round stuff, and, and, and after that, we were obsessed with Hi, How Are You, Yip Junk Music, Songs of Pain. We played those over and over again. So when Kurt Cobain wore that, first, when I saw him wearing that, was on the MTV Music Awards. I had known Daniel for about five years, and we, we could not find any more of these tapes. This is before the internet. So I only had these two tapes, and they were wearing out, and I was getting scared because they already sounded shitty. <laughs> anyway, and I'm like, where do I find these tapes? Where do I find this guy? And then all of a sudden, I'm like, what? Kurt Cobain is in the biggest band on the planet. He's on the MTV Music Awards, and he's wearing a Hi How Are You shirt. And we were so happy to see that. It was a real stamp of approval. And as we, as we go on in the narrative, you'll see how much of a big deal that was to Daniel's career, certainly. But, yeah, I mean – what we're going to try to do in this podcast, as I mentioned earlier, is we're going to play some some covers. And although, sadly, Nirvana never did covers, Pearl Jam did. And we're going to play uh, a, a, a song later on by Eddie Vedder, a cover of one of uh, Daniel's earlier songs. But um, you have one here, which I really love, from a record called The Late Great Daniel Johnston that came out before he died, which I thought was ironic. And there's a bunch of great covers by great bands. We have quite a few we're going to play, but this is a really good one of one of his early signature songs. Well, it's interesting. Uh, this record, what they did was they asked a bunch of musicians to just do a cover of your favorite Daniel Johnston song. So it's not a the, – and the, the first disc on the album is a whole bunch of different people, uh, Beck, Clem Snide, uh, Teenage Fan Club with with Jad Fair, uh, Sparkle Horse, Sparkle with, Horse uh, with uh, yeah. who's Sparkle Horse with? Uh, They're with uh, the um, oh, uh, Flaming Lips. Yeah, Flaming Lips. That's right. Uh, and uh, then the second disc is Daniel's version of all those songs. So it's not a complete. It's a weird because it's not a completest album. It doesn't have a lot of his famous songs on it. Right. His most famous songs. Some of them. It has some of them, but uh, because it's not based on like they didn't pick the songs and then have people cover them. Right. They asked people what they wanted to do and people did it. Right. Uh, and and it's it's interesting because I think that Daniel Johnston can be very hard uh, for people to uh, grasp at first. Right. As you but, could hear from these first couple of songs. Yeah, they're very lo-fi. You know, his idea of a recording studio that he built was later on when he. I moved in with his brother at one yes. point, and he bought in Houston. Right, he bought us. He turned his uh his weight room in his garage into a recording studio by putting uh like a keyboard on the weight bench, <laughs> and he bought a second tape recorder. So and he overdubbed. A, so having a second tape recorder, he could overdub because he could play what he recorded on the first one, and then just push record on the second one while he played something new. So it's the most lo-fi of lo-fi recording yes. things. It's all going through the air. Um, there is no chords going anywhere, right? Really. And you could somehow hear shuffling in the background every once in a while. You could hear a cat meow. I'm telling you, yeah. it's like, it, and and he would record some of these things over and over again. Sometimes he would lose the tape and have to record the whole album again, and he would do it. Oh yeah. In fact, when he the, it, one of the things he talked about in the movie is at one point when he's finished a record, the way to when someone else wants he wants to give a copy to someone. Uh, like he, he sometimes he just couldn't find the original tape, or yeah. he didn't. Maybe he didn't have a thing to dub tapes with, so he would just go home and record the record again by playing it all <laughs> right. for someone else. You know, yes. Uh, 
he would just do it over and over again. And so there are probably multiple. There not probably there There's are definitely, definitely like yes. for some of these early records like Songs of Pain and Yip Junk Music. Uh, fifty copies of the record might be really fifty different records. Yes. Um, at some point, Tartikoff, his manager, starts to, has a tape dubbing thing in his office. Yes. And he's just running the copies are just running tape to tape in his office, so they're getting played over and over again. Yes. Uh, and thank God for him because years later, I was able to contact him and then get tapes, and then they eventually started coming out in CD. Yeah. And now he has a website, obviously. But and, and for years, I would just buy anything from Daniel just to keep him going. I, I didn't know how he was going, so I have a signed copy of "Hi, How Are You" on my office. I've got. T-shirt. I just bought whatever I could every yeah. year from Daniel. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so let's play this cover. Yeah, because I think the covers can be a way of uh, a nice doorway into Daniel Johnston because, you know, they're a little less, I guess, insane in some ways than his <laughs> versions of it. And although that may be the appeal to some people, there's, well, we can talk about this later, but it is one of the things that can be bothersome about Daniel Johnston fandom. is I, I think a lot of it did have to do with, ooh, I love this guy and he's, he's mentally ill. You know, right, he's because great, you know, they got a kick out of him because he was, you know, and it's like because you are really, I mean, that's but what is an artist except for someone who's painting things that give you a window into who they are, and the window into Daniel involves some serious mental illness, some debilitating mental illness, right? And, and he had such a pure and sweet heart that you just root for him. At times, he also had a temper, and he was very strong, and, and he was terrifying. Yes, and I'll book to his to family that. and his friends at times. That is um, true. That's true. Uh, but this is a song called. Either it's don't let the song go down on your grievances, or it's, as he pronounces it, don't let the song go down on your grievance. It's a grievance. Which I wonder if, if as he was singing it, he was just forgetting what the word even for grievances was. <laughs> yeah. um, but he calls it grievance, and it's, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's one of his more famous songs. It, it is, really is, yes. It's been so this is, this is Clem Snide covering uh, Daniel Johnston, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Your Grievances, or Grievance, from 2004's The Late Great Daniel Johnston album. Uh, dig it. If you find yourself 
in the dark And you're left holding the bag Be sure and take care of it right away And don't let the sun go down on your grievance Cause sometimes you might be alone Feel lonely cause you're gonna find You're gonna find that sometimes you might want to give up But keep your chin up cause you're gonna find You're gonna find Don't let the sun go down on your grievance Start each day with a clean slate And you'll feel better if you just shake off all that hate And don't forget to Give and forget and Don't let the sun go down on your grievance and Don't let the sun go down on your grievance Don't let the sun go down Now, that song is from Yip Jump Music, uh, and we'll get to talking about that in a minute. I did want to play a couple of songs from Songs of Pain and Songs of Pain 2, his first two tapes. But I'm glad you actually played that because uh, I did want to uh, read the Southern Notes that I took. It was around this time, like right, I want to say 80, 81, he went to Houston to live with his older brother Dick and his family. And at that point, he worked at a place called Astroworld. I remember you telling me about going to Astroworld when you lived in Houston, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have I, I very fond memories sure. of that place. Um, he then discovered the idea of recording on two tape recorders, as Adam mentioned, and the chord organ, which is why he recorded most of his Yip Jump music stuff. And I, I did want to play – I'm going to play a couple of songs here. Um, I had Like Monkey in the Zoo first, but I want to get to that in a minute. I do want to play Casper the Friendly Ghost because it's a great example of what Yip Jump music was to us. This is one of the ones that used to make us laugh so hard because it's very clever. It's very funny, but the way he's playing the chord organ – and I guess, how would you describe a quarter organ? Just like a little Casio-y thing? That I guess, just, yeah. I don't, I'm not really sure. It's like the cheapest thing. And you, and you hit it, and you could hear his fingers hitting it. <laughs> because it's on a tape recorder. Well, yeah, and you it's, can, not, it's, not, it's not taking the sound from a chord out. No. So you're not hearing the sound. You're hearing like through the air in the room. Right. So you're hearing him pounding on the keys and you're hearing the organ play out. And you're hearing him saying, and, and Casper the Friendly Ghost is an interesting, one of those characters that continue to flow through Daniel's art and life. One of the things that's fascinating about him is that he does become a myth. He becomes the myths that we've talked about many times on on this podcast is that rock and roll is filled with it. 
entertainment industry, art is filled with that. And he had it built in. There were years in the early 90s when we would get, you'd hear rumors through other friends, musician friends. Do you hear Daniel Johnston's back in the mental institution? Do you hear Daniel Johnston fell down the stairs? They, Daniel Johnston's missing. You get these these rumors and people would be that's why I was always so worried about him and anyway so he's in Houston he's he's living in the he's basically living with his brother because his parents are done with him he's out of school he's working at Astro World and he records what many people feel was his really lo-fi masterpiece yep jump music I am like Adam sort of privy to hi how are you in fact I'm so privy to that record I'm not even going to play any of it on this podcast. I think you should just go and find it and play the whole thing because most of it is really sound effects, weird stuff. We'll get to that later. But anyway, here is from Yip Jump Music, unless you have something you'd like to add, is Casper the Friendly Ghost. Well, I just want to say there there were a few characters, the eyeballs, Casper, uh, the guy with the head that's cut open, right, and Captain America. Captain America and the frog. The frog who show up. Throughout his imagery and throughout his album covers and his art and his little movies that he did, they're just characters he was obsessed with for one reason or another. Right, and he did all these tapes. He would draw all the art, write all the the, the credits on there and the song titles and uh, everything he did, everything. And it is amazing when you consider what he was battling mentally and also he had no money. He was was basically – he had no – he couldn't work really. I mean I see he worked at Astroland. You'll see later on he's bounced from place to place. He couldn't stay in school. And he's obsessed with Lori Allen. Anyway, here's Casper the Friendly Ghost from Yip Jump Music. The coyote goes. <laughs> he was smiling through his own personal hell. Dropped his last dime in a wishing well. But he was hoping too close and then he fell. Now he's Casper the Friendly Ghost. He was always to the people who tell him that he was nothing but a lazy bum, but goodbye to them, he had to go. Now he's Casper the Friendly Ghost. Nobody treated him nice while alive you can't buy no respect like the librarian said but everybody respects the dead they love the friendly ghost and now they say we'll never forget what he learned us, we were mean to him, but he never burned us in. 
You know, that one for me, I I don't know, you're probably, most people here are too young to have watched this, but Casper the Friendly Ghost is this great cartoon when we were kids. Yeah, we should explain that. But largely about a ghost who just really, really wants friends. And he's a ghost, so he can't know any people, and he goes to meet people. He always tries to meet people, and he scares the crap out of them. He's just trying to, and, and every Casper cartoon is basically about the same thing. He's just trying to meet people and make friends, and... And they, he, no matter what he does, he terrifies everyone. Uh, and it's funny, like, I don't know why it never occurred to me before, because it is a funny song, but it's actually just him, like, that is the plot line of his life, you know, in a way. He, he, he just freaks out everyone he talks to. And uh, at least at this point, still, he's freaking out everyone who hears his stuff, too, because he's not really... Right. blown up in that way yet it's starting to but i don't know that whether he's experiencing that much and in fact we know he's not no way he's in houston it, there's no yes. way he's experiencing any success yet it can't have happened yet he's not gone down to austin yet right um and and he's he's running out of options he's 22 23 at this point and a lot of his songs you know he even references in that you know everybody when he was alive everybody called him a waste and a lazy bum then he died and now everyone loves him <laughs> That's the theory of that. Even though you're right, every Casper the Friendly Ghost is about that. But in essence, what he's saying is, I'm. I would if I die. You know, it's the old thing when you're a kid. What if I were dead? Everyone would be sorry. You know what I mean? That's. But it's more than that. It's like I have to die. Tell me what we said about about um, about uh, great artists who are not respected, never sold a painting in their in their lives, or never uh, or never got a short story published and then die. In essence, he's actually predicting that. He's like, I'm going to have to be dead to be appreciated. Everyone thinks I'm a bum, but not Casper. He came back, and he was, and everyone loved him now because he's dead, which is, in an essence, also is a very sad tale. Very sad tale. And even though these songs, again, are fun and funny to listen to, and you listen to it, and you're like, oh, but then you listen deeper, and you get these themes from it. Because he's, pl- he's coming from a very, very honest, as we said at the top, a very honest, painful place. And, and they're all raw. They're musically raw, and they're emotionally raw. There's no escaping it. Yeah, I mean, that one especially. And, and, and his obsession with... I mean, he was really obsessed with the Casper thing. And, and that... Uh, it's one of those things where you... He's probably watching this cartoon because he's a little older than I am, and... He's a little older than me and you, right? Yes, or, yeah. yeah. So he's, I'm sure he saw this car- this cartoon a lot as a kid. And, like, the weird thing is it's funny. Like, even though no one in the cartoons understands Casper, we did as yes. the viewers. We understood that Casper was a great guy and a nice guy. And, like, the same way that Daniel would have been watching this cartoon where everyone in the cartoon is scared and reacts negatively to the character. But the people watching it, including Daniel know that Casper is a lovely, friendly ghost, you know, and he's great. That's why he's the friendly ghost. And he's, like, looking for that himself, too, and it's funny in a way that, like, uh, you know, you wonder when you write songs if you're trying to get people to understand that, you know, to understand who you are and to, like, convince them that you don't have to be scared of you, you know? Right. If anyone would hear the song and think differently, and then you end up just latching on to that as a character, and because later on, that's what happens, you know, later in life, he's on the plane with his dad. Yeah, and he thinks he's Casper. He said he he's taking a flight home from 
Are they going home from they, they, a very yeah a very triumphant show um, that he played? He returned to Austin uh, triumphantly because at this point Austin was a thing and yeah. South by Southwest was a thing and he played South by Southwest and it's considered one of the legendary. He only played like three songs, but it's Daniel Johnston coming home when he was a nobody and he worked at McDonald's and I'll get to that in a bit. He 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 comes back triumphantly and then on the flight back because his father. Uh, was in the Air Force, and he flew planes. He was a pilot, and he had a, a, a small private plane, and they're flying back. It's like a, sing, it's like a single, single you know, wing, a single engine, like, like Cessna, prop plane, Cessna, like yeah. a small, small plane yeah. that they traveled in. Yes. And he, he's very strong. He and, uh, Overwhelms his father, who's an older man there, and pulls and says, I'm Casper. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly. And he pulls, he tries to rest the, the steering wheel away from him, and he actually pulls the key out and throws it out the window. Yeah. And his father has to land this plane at, without killing the two of them, which he does. Amazing. Yeah, it's like, kind of amazing. His father's pretty much a badass. <laughs> he is a badass. And he tells that story and he starts to weep because he feels so ter- – he feels – he's frightened of his child, but he's also – and by this point, you know, Daniel's in his 30s or 40s. Um, but anyway – we never we never finished talking about Lori Allen, and I think having yes. explained her early on, it's important to say that, like – she is, in his mind, the love of his life from the moment he meets her. He does write a thousand songs about right, her. Right, the unrequited love. Yeah, but she's like a friend he makes at college. He knows her for five minutes. Yes. And she uh, She marries... doesn't know he's this obsessed. Yeah, she has no idea. No. And she marries this, the son of an undertaker. Right, right. Marries another guy. Within a year, I think, of meeting him, it's yes. pretty early. And so, like, th- this is not like a long friendship, courtship. There's none of that. It's l- largely... In his head. In his head. And yeah. he's friends with her. But she, very soon after they meet, gets married to this other guy yeah. and goes on to live her life. Um, he sees her years later at a funeral, I guess. Yeah. At the, at the funeral home. Yeah. Uh, his father, and then he's written many songs, including Funeral Home and a couple of other songs about that. And he describes it as wanting to, when she, he sees her with someone else, crawl into the casket, which he uses as a, 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 you know, a symbolism quite a bit in his yeah. songs as well. Yeah. No, it's true. Lori Allen hovers over a lot of this material. And anytime a woman is mentioned, it's her. Um, there's a couple of songs. We can go either way on this. I did want to play Like a Monkey in the Zoo from an earlier piece. You want to play that? And then we'll play yeah, Sorry Entertainer. Yeah, there's so many great songs during this period. This was my favorite song when I first got my first tapes, uh, Like a Monkey in a Zoo. Uh, I love the piano part. I love the, 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 how he presents it. But I also love the sentiment, in, which is exactly what we're talking about. This idea of how he feels, how he's being treated by his family, by his some of the people in college, by his teachers, by society at large, just how he sees it. And he, he expresses it so beautifully in this song, how he feels like a monkey in a zoo. Yeah. And this, this is from either Songs of Pain or Songs of Pain. It's, to it's e- Songs of Pain. It is. Okay. Very well. So, yeah, here's Daniel Johnson. Very, very early Daniel Johnson, even earlier than Casper here. I'm chained to the wall I have nothing at all And my eyes look into the sunset Thinking of better things to do Like a monkey in a zoo The days go so slow Like this Oh, but I never 
There's some really like poignant moments in that song. I mean, it's a it's a silly song at times because he keeps calling himself a monkey. But also, it's like I'm chained to the wall. I'm nothing at all, and my eyes look into the sunset, thinking of better things to do, like a monkey in a zoo, like a caged person. You know, it's like this wistful looking off in the distance. You know, and he's aware of it. And the next verse, especially, uh, oh, I love these that. days go so slow. I don't have no friends. Except all the people who want me to do tricks for them, like a monkey in a <laughs> I zoo. That. I mean, but in a way, it's like it's not only descriptive of his life as like a, an outcast in the basement of his parents' house then, but maybe it's a description of how like his relationships with people when he does become famous later too. You know, because I do think there was a lot of people who were like, "Well, I love the crazy guy." You know, I'm a big fan of Daniel Johnson. Right. You know who's, you know. Do that funny thing you do. Well, he, you know, in every concert was like when we talk about Daniel Johnson's concerts, they're they're often he doesn't have a good sense of time. No, and he often played two or three songs without realizing that's all he'd played, and then walked off stage. Right. Sometimes just a couple songs, and then you know someone would encourage him to go back and do another. That that very triumphant Austin thing takes place in the in the film when he comes back to Austin again yeah, years right. later, and he's it's a huge huge deal at the big concert. At, at South by Southwest and he really only plays like three songs yeah. or two yeah. songs and then he comes back for an encore it was more like just, just wanted to see and he has a song called King Kong that Tom Waits does a great version of it's long though on this record on that cover record we're, we're playing some songs off of but um, the whole King Kong thing it's like hey here you go perform take you out of your habitat shove and again a monkey shove you in front of her you know that whole theme of that. So the, the, for the bits here like even when he sends you know uh this uh, I'm so alone, but this is my home, and the bars that surround me keep me from knowing any better. And later, when he sings the last, ver- what, what oh saying? yes, please. Go what ahead. Were you say? Well, no, that's exactly what I was going to say. The last verse in the song is so amazing. When he says, uh, "I used to be happy, I can't remember those days, but I sold my freedom for free room and board, like a monkey in a zoo." You know, he'd been living in his parents' house, 
And then he kind of got kicked out of there and went to live in his sister's house. His brother's house first. Wasn't it his sister? Yeah, oh, yeah his brother's house goes first, to his you know. Sisters, yeah. and, he, and he's living, and he's basically he's turned his brother's garage where his weight bench is into his recording studio, and he's. Um, but this is right before that. This is still in his parents' house at yes, this point. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, and he's like, I sold my freedom for free room and board like a monkey in a zoo. But like, that never changes for him. No, no. But, but I mean, he, the, his awareness of it at that point. Right. It's not like he thinks he's a kid. It's not like when he's a kid and his parents are yelling at him to do stuff and he's like, what? And you can justify it because he's 15. Right. But no, he's, he's not 15 here. He's in his late twenties, maybe. Well, no, no, he's in his early twenties there. Early twenties. When yeah, he yeah. does this song in 82. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's, I actually died when he was 58. So he's a year, year and a half older than me, about two yeah. years older than me. So oh, yeah. yeah. So in 18, in 82, no, he, yeah, he's 21 or something yeah, like yeah. that in 82. You know, and he's, he, he's aware of his, you know, he's not on his own. He can't be. So he's in the basement doing these songs and he realizes he's trapped by it. He doesn't have the freedom to do whatever he wants to do. And that is one of the impetuses. So as you mentioned, he's, he's shipped off to his, his brother, and then he's shipped off to his sister's house. And at that point, he disappears and joins the carnival, which is another fascinating sort of Woody Guthrie-esque Robert Johnson myth about him. But it's true. He joins this carnival, and he's gone. Nobody who knows it, his friends, his high school friends, his L'Oreal, nobody knows where he is. He's just missing and then, and I do want to play another song from well, we should, we should, we should, from Yip Jump before we, we get into the this. Stuff from Yip Jump before, before we get, we get to, it, to Austin, because right. it has to do with what happens in Austin. Um, Correct. This is this is. What do you want? What do you say about it's, it? It's uh, you want to play Sorry, Sorry Entertainer. Entertainer. Yeah. yeah. Now you made a good point. You think it's one of the f- finer pieces of his lo-fi that he's recorded, and I don't disagree with that. And it's yeah. another gut-wrenching testimonial to his life. I mean, it's. On the one hand, you hear him playing guitar but not making any of the chords ring. He's like, he can't, even play. Yeah. He, can't he can't really play it right. But he's the melody of it. It's this classic blues form thing that it sounds at first like it's not going to be any good because he can't really play the guitar. <laughs> um, but the melody, like the melody line that he's moving through, is so cool and different. Um, I don't know. I I just love this song. Uh, yeah. This is one of my favorite things that he actually recorded. Um, I, I it really knocks me out. He decides early on he's doing a certain thing with the guitar, and he does it the whole song, drills it through. The vocal is cool. It's like this one always really knocked me out of his early stuff. Like, yep. And this is sorry, entertainer. This is also from Yip Jump Music, eighty three. So it's all recorded in his brother's garage on the weight bench in Houston. Yep. Where the wind blows, that's where I 
song to that second well you know where the wind blows that's where I go where the moon is that's where I am and when I have a problem always hoping the wind will blow me away again and the second verse drove those demons out of my head with, a, with an organ and a pencil full of lead that's you know cool. that's that's pretty much a self-description right there you know he's he's got this problem but it helps him to write the songs you know for one reason or the other you know yep and, and then like the well, I was gonna go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Well, the end of the song too, the last verse. Now the curtain parts the stage. It's the dawning of a new and exciting age, and I'm free, free at last, like a monkey out of his cage. You know that like, in in writing this stuff on this record, like he has it, it liberates him. You know, uh, it's a different. I mean, this is a different record than like a monkey in a zoo on this one. This is the same record as. Uh, Casper. Casper the Friendly yeah. Ghost. It's and the one that's considered his real masterpiece of like combining the lo-fi stuff with the desperation of the songs of pain uh, stuff. A- and even the sound effect stuff that he does in Hi, How Are You, which is the, you know, where he pulls the child's toy. Uh, the cow goes boo. Yeah. You know, and that that's transitional material that he's using, which is very clever and, and creative in itself. See, the thing I think that really sells something like Sorry Entertainer and Casper is the sweetness of his voice. He sounds like, because of the, the lo-fi and the tape, and he has a high-pitched voice, he sounds like he's like 12 years old. And since so he's playing these 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 instruments, very rudimentary, it's like when you're a little kid and you pick up an instrument, but you want to write a song, and he does it, and he sells it beautifully. And it's not even, a, that's what I'm trying to say, it's a bad word, not selling. He's performing, he's not even performing, what is he doing? He's expressing this so beautifully. And it's the thing that always breaks my heart when I listen to these songs. It's like, he inside he's still a child he's he's wrestling with all these imageries and he has this great uh spoken word thing that he says might be in the film where he sings uh, i'm a writer i'm a writer but you better write quick cuz your pencil's on fire i'm a writer I'm, or you're a writer you're a writer you're a writer but you better write quick but cuz your pencil's on fire and that's what sorry entertainer sounds like even the music sounds stressed it sounds anxious it sounds painful he's actually in, by playing that way, it's... You know what I mean? That it's, melody... It's I'm a loner, I'm a sorry entertainer. It's so cool. That melody kills me. Uh, it is very bluesy, you're right. Yep. We want to play a song, uh, one more song from Yip Junk Music. This is a, a cover of it by uh, Sufjan Stevens and Daniel Smith. Um, this is from a different uh, compilation of covers called I Killed the Monster. Right. Um 
and uh, the song's called Worried Shoes, and it's really interesting. It's like, it's another sort of, it's sort of significant in his description of life, you know, as opposed to songs of pain and when he's in the basement and like trapped there and sold his freedom like a monkey in a zoo, you know. A lot of Yip Jump music is about getting out and getting away. It's sort of, it's sort of like he's born to run in some ways, you know. Mm. Uh, took my lucky break and broke it in two, put on my worried shoes, my worried shoes. And my shoes took me so many miles, they never worried, wore out my worried shoes. Uh, where's the other one, the, the line? Uh, my worried shoes and my shoes took me down a crooked path away from all the welcome mats, my worried shoes. Uh, and then later in the song, and then one day I looked around and I found the sun shining down and I took off my worried shoes and the feet broke free and I didn't need to wear my worried shoes. Then I knew the difference between worrying and caring because I've got a lot of walking to do and I don't want to wear my worried shoes. You know, it's, it's a great precursor to what's going to happen to him in his life in Austin. Yeah, because he really it's, is. He's feeling a sense of freedom, you know, uh, whether he's at his brother's house or at his sister's a little while after that. You know, he. The problem is he can't always handle that freedom, but at least in his mind, he's in that garage, he's playing music, he's got his own recording studio. It, it, it may be someone's garage, but it's his recording studio, you know, and. Uh, he's making his own world. He's got a job at Astro World. Yeah. Um, it's funny, they, they talk about it during the movie that no matter what job he gets, he. He goes places and gets work and always uh, migrates to whatever the lowest, easiest form of work is. You know, like he gets a job at McDonald's doing something, but... He doesn't, he doesn't cook the food or... Eventually or, or, he can't cook the food. He can't he do can't any do stuff. It. He ends up cleaning tables. That's what he does. You know, no matter what he does, he ends up migrating to whatever the easiest version of it is. And he, he often likes it, kind of, being there and doing a job and feeling like a guy who works. Right. Um... And this is kind of a beautiful version of one of his songs. I think. Oh, I, I mean, I'm. You, you We're know a little biased. Was, we both will have Sufjan. You know, he was Sufjan. Yeah, he's too, the first. Like, he's the first artist we played on this podcast. Um, yeah. His work is, and and we should say. You know, it's around the holiday times when we're, we're recording this. His his remember his Christmas records are great. So go out and find them. You know. Yeah, he's made about I don't know eight different yes. Christmas EPs, and they're collected. Or you can buy them separately, but they have they're they're in box they sets. They really are amazing. I mean, that version of the little drummer boy he yeah. did was it's it's breathtaking. Which we did play on our first yeah. podcast. Yeah, thank you for introducing me to that. I, I listen to it every season now. Yeah. So this is uh, Worried Shoes, Daniel Smith and Sufjan Stevens from I Killed the Monster. took my lucky break and I broke it in two Put on my worried shoes My worried shoes And my shoes took me so many miles and they never wore out My worried shoes My worried shoes I made a mistake and I, I never forgot I tied knots in the laces of Further and further away In my I worry shoes 
Yeah, Sue Fan Stevens does a fantastic job of really capturing his phrasing and his voice and his style. That's the closest thing you're going to hear to a cover where the artist is really trying to infuse Daniel's quirkiness, his youthful presentation, and I love the way that's produced. It's very ethereal, extremely mystical, kind of all the things we were talking about that's going on in Daniel's head. He was he had an imagination that was just boundless. Yeah, they captured the whole Abbey Road circus that's probably going in on in Daniel's head. You know, when he hears, <laughs> well said. you know, that's what a lot of people have said about Daniel Johnson is that you can hear in his music all the things other people would have done with his music. You know, because those kind, those melodies that he has, they have that in them. You know, to be all kinds of different things. Uh, he just never got a chance to record, or never, only got a few chances to really record him that way. And uh, but you can hear in some of the covers. When, when, when people say, I hear all this stuff in Daniel Johnson's music, when you listen to the covers people do of him, you can really hear some of the things they're hearing in it and what, what his music could have been like in some ways if he'd been more, you know, let's be more able to deal with life and, right. and to explore some of that stuff, maybe. Yep. Um, but his whole life's about to change. You know, he's uh, lived in his brother's uh, house for a while and he goes through a really, they have a, a Thanksgiving party or a Christmas party there, and and he gets really uh, violent because he's strong. I don't know if he means to, but he he sort of like gets into sort of some wrestling matches in the house, and it, and, yeah. it, and it gets kind of people get hurt, uh, and eventually uh, he has to leave and go to his sister's house. I think that's what happens. It's after that he yes. goes to his sister's house, and that's when he, as I mentioned earlier, he uh, he just disappears. He, he he goes to the carnival. Uh, that's visiting, and he just joins it, like the mystical stories of the boy who joins the circus. And yeah, yeah, and he literally does that. And but for a while, no one knows where he's gone. He's just disappeared off the face for of the earth. For three months, they're yeah. calling cops, hospitals. They cannot find this kid for three months, and he's in this carnival. And what happens to him when the carnival gets to Austin is symbolic. It's realistic. And it's pretty amazing stuff. And and the whole thing, because it's just like his life in so many ways, yes. because it is the depths of despair followed by the heights of possibility and and triumph. And then that happens so uh, many it's a times cycle in that life. repeats. Yes. But it's just like what goes on in his mind. He's bipolar. He has manic episodes where everything seems like it's great, although for people around people who are bipolar, manic episodes probably are the worst right. because they're impossible to deal with at those moments. Uh, and then he has depressive episodes where he goes through the floor. Um, it's funny. I think what people don't realize about manic depressives or bipolar people is that actually it's the it's the manic parts that destroy your life. The depressive parts feel bad, but the manic parts are the parts where you absolutely destroy all the connections you have with other people and you make it so you can't be alone uh, you can't be with anyone you have to be alone and then you're in the depressive state and you're right. all alone and uh but what happens to daniel changes his life because because of what happens he ends up in austin and because he's in austin the world changes and he becomes world famous really uh because of being there it, it is uh tragedy and comedy and triumph all at once and uh we're gonna do a couple short podcasts now. We're, we realize we're pretty much a little over. We're about an hour and ten right now, hour and fifteen. And uh, uh, rather than make this like a two and a half hour Daniel Johnson, we're gonna do two shorter podcasts on him. Um, and this is a good place to stop because it's 
as as Adam said, this is a key element in his life. This, if you were going to do uh, a book, this would be the end of part one for Daniel Johnston, and part two is where things really happen for him. And as Adam said, it will it will what happens to to Daniel in Austin, and how he connects to the underground and the alternative music scene, and how he connects on a grander scale through MTV and all the things that happen to him repeat themselves throughout his adult life as he becomes more and more well-known and people start to gravitate towards him. Great filmmakers and artists and certainly musicians. And that's where his life becomes, in essence, like you said, a comedy tragedy. It really is. Um, comedy tragedy triumph. It's got all, he's got all things. Good point. He does it's triumph. It's funny. It's not really funny. It's uh... The, the funny part yeah. about it is, is that it's it, it's it's comedy in the absurdest sense of yeah. of the word. I don't mean it's it's fun. You're right. You're right. It, there is there's many parts, but he does a great job of never. Although he writes songs about feeling sorry for himself, he just keeps going. He keeps working and keeps making things, making songs, making paintings, drawing, doing all those things. Constantly a creative entity, as I said at the top. So, anyway, let's. Uh, he's in ma- he's in many ways the kid he was. As a yes. 16-year-old, as a 15-year-old, as people – as you said, I think, early in the podcast, he exudes art. He is art. He – from the moment he's a young kid, he goes down in his basement, his art studio, his art lab, as he calls it, and he yeah. makes art. And that continues throughout his life. One way or another, he he's finds that lab. creating. And, right. And people gravitate to that. Uh, and so anyways, uh, we'll be back in the next podcast to talk a little bit more about Daniel Johnston. Uh, I'm James. I'm Adam. Peace. Late.